There's a better than excellent chance you were taught that first there were the Articles of Confederation, then there was the Constitution. Maybe they explained the Articles weren't forceful enough and didn't collect enough taxes, so they needed something new. And then you moved on to the War of Northern Aggression or something. That glossed over period of time contains a wealth of knowledge and information they didn't tell you. My guest today has spent the last 40 or so years gathering information about that period and there's a good chance you have never heard this before. The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, episode 201. Welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Hello, folks. Dan Reed here, the Culinary Libertarian. Welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. Michael Gaddy is my guest today. Michael has been reading about the Constitution for about 40 years, focusing on the parts that are missing out of the textbooks by finding primary documents from the founding area. Turns out, there's a lot missing from those textbooks. Michael shares his knowledge and information on several audio platforms appearing as Rebel Madman, as well as message apps. Today, he's sharing some of his knowledge with us. Hello, Mike. Thank you for joining me today on the Culinary Libertarian Podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Dan. It really is. The pleasure is all mine, and you came at a high recommendation from some friends of mine, so I joined some of your groups, and we're going to talk about that. You need a um, new set of friends. I might indeed. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know who you are. You're listening to this. I know you are. You're the one that's putting me up to this. Um, so I invited you on to discuss... I want to start with basics, and we can. And, and, and you, you know a lot in this area, and you tend to go into the deep end of the pool very quickly. And what am I talking about? Uh, I want to talk about the basics of the Constitution, but the part that nearly nobody knows anything about. Talk a little bit about anti-federalists, and then the hard part, I think, is how and why knowing this information matters and what do we do with that? Well, that's <laughs> sure we have half an hour. I'm kidding. So before we get into all of that, and that is a lot, can you give us a bit of a bio for the listeners? Oh, well, um, I was, uh, a frustrated high school student. Uh, uh unfortunately, uh, my, uh, history my history classes were usually taught by coach, uh, who, uh, you know, needed a, a teaching position so that he could coach uh, whatever sport he was involved in. And uh, my history classes consisted of usually, uh, hey, read this chapter, answer the questions at the end of the chapter, and tomorrow we'll watch a video. So uh, that was, uh, but it was frustrating to me because I wanted to know more. It was just, uh, but I ended up hating history. Well, I get to college and uh 
which which came after a some military service, and then I began to go to college while I was still in the military. But uh, I ended up with a professor at the University of Maryland, who uh, in my first two to three weeks in his class, and my first class was a freshman class, and it was called American History until 1860. Well, after about uh, a week or so, I was absolutely positive that this man was insane. Uh, because uh, he was saying things I had never heard before. And now you have to admit that this is the 1960s and he is already 70 years old. But he he's still teaching because he loved it and that's what he wanted to do. So one of the things I would do is I would make uh, copious notes and uh, when he finished with his lecture, if I had the opportunity right away, I would do it. If it, I had to wait a few uh, hours to do it, I would still do it. I would rush immediately to the library because I was determined I was going to prove this crazy man to be crazy. Uh, he was just saying things that I had just never heard. And I think it was about two to three weeks into the class, and he came up with something just really off the wall to me. And I remember sitting there staring at him, and he pointed to me, and he said, Look it up, Mr. Gaddy, look it up. And I thought, this, how does he know? How does he know what I'm doing? And, but I was so intrigued by him because I couldn't prove him wrong. And that was something I wanted to do. I wanted to prove him wrong. And the thing that was so intriguing was that I decided I wanted to take more of his classes as I was pursuing my educational career. So I took every class he taught, whether I needed it for graduation or not, whether I needed it for my degree. And it was just amazing because the other thing, Dan, that was just absolutely amazing about him and God that we had professors like this today, he would show up to teach a class in character. He would come in and teach a class as Patrick Henry. He would teach a class as Thomas Jefferson. He would teach a class as Douglas MacArthur. He, regardless of what it was, and everything that he taught that day would be as that character. And so if you had a question in class, you had to ask that character the question, which was relevant with the time period in which they lived. You couldn't just come up with a modern-day question because that was not relevant in his world. So you had to be able to ask him a question, which required one hell of a lot of research. And uh, I realized today, back then I thought it was a nuisance, but I realized today what he was doing. He was actually educating people. And I had the opportunity to actually sit down in his office and talk with him before I graduated. And he said, here's the thing. He said, most everything that is taught in the halls of academia today is up, up plain and simple bullcrap. And he said, it is to fit an agenda. And he said, the agenda started in America in the 19, 1907, 1909, 1910. He said it was started by three nonprofit organizations, the Ford, the Carnegie and the Rockefeller Foundations, and they decided they were going to take over the education of America, and they were going to teach a new history. And he said they were able to do it because they put $54 million into the program in the 19-teens. 
This was long before the Department of Education. So they put this all together and they started teaching revisionist history. And he said, the reason I haven't retired, although I've been eligible for years, is because I want to keep fighting this. Someone has to stand up against this. And he said, the majority of the other history professors at this uh, university will will teach exactly the opposite of what I do because they are being indoctrinated and not educated. So it was one of those points, Dan, in life that just really sent me down a different trail. And he gave me some very excellent advice. He said, here's the one thing you have to learn about history. He said, true history comes in parcels. You don't find the whole package at one time. You find it in bits and pieces. He said, if you want to be a good historian, you have to put those pieces together. You don't find it all at once. So, uh, you know, I've probably stretched this out a little bit farther. But anyway, um, Dan, I ended up uh, being in the employ of what we referred to in the late 60s as the No Such Agency, uh, which today is known as NSA. And uh, back then it was an entirely different operation of what it has become. Because back then, very few people had ever heard of it. And so I was in there in a military capacity. And then uh, my uh, supervisor walks in one day and says, uh, hey, uh, he said, we have a civilian opening coming up. And he said, your uh, enlistment in the military is ending soon. And we have a, an open position, he said, which pays three times what you're getting now. Uh, he said, uh, what's your choice? And I said, uh, here, sir, twist my arm. So um, it was uh, so, but Dan, in the 1980s, early 1980s, I began to see the programs that had been employed by this country's government against foreign countries to start being employed against U.S. citizens. And I had a real problem with that. And then I got involved in what was called the uh, prisoner of war missing in action uh, movement at that time. And uh, then I began to be more and more disgusted with my government when I determined that Patton, General George Patton may have died because he was trying to get back American POWs from the Russians. And Eisenhower was not compatible with that, and it ended up being a huge issue. He and uh, Patton and Eisenhower ended up in a screaming match on a platform in Germany. And Patton says to Eisenhower, uh, Ike, either you get these men back, you do what's necessary to get these men back, or I'll do it. Ten days later, Patton's dead. So um, I got heavily involved and uh, joined an organization called the American Foundation for Accountability of Prisoners of War and Missing in Action. And I spent uh, quite some time with them as public relations. I was traveling around the country giving presentations to uh, groups, uh, you know, all over the U.S., Texas. Uh, I was actually in Oregon for a while, uh, Washington, uh, the state of Washington, different places. And then I was uh, elected by the board to be vice president of the American Foundation for Accountability of Prisoners of War Missing in Action. And this uh, put me in uh, Washington, D.C., in fighting uh, for uh, to bring out the truth to the families and to America about what about the fighting men and women that had been left behind in the hands of their enemy for, uh, you know, experimentation, for mind control, for all kind of things they had been used for. 
And then when I went into the National Archives and found out that that had been true since World War One, I, I was really appalled. So I left the National Security Agency and went to work for American Foundation for Accountability, Prisoner of War, and Missing Action. And, uh, but during the time that I had access in the National Archive to even uh, classified documents, some of the things I saw about history were really perplexing. And I had to, I just felt that, uh, hey, you were given this opportunity for a reason. So you have to develop that. And that's what I did. And uh, sorry for making the intro bio uh, being uh, three chapters of the first book, but... Uh, <laughs> That is the truth. It's a compelling bio, and I don't mind at all. I, th I think your bio has at least accomplished the kinds of topic we're going to get into here. Um, I want to read. It, it's it's a it's a medium long piece you wrote, and I think it's going to really kind of just cement where we go here. And then I want to get into. Um, well, I'm going to I'm going to tip my hand to you, and you'll you'll get it, and then the readers will the listeners will hear it in a minute. Uh, a very famous three word phrase that means nothing, um, but the, you, what you wrote, and I found this on I think it was in your Teach Me, might have been off a of Telegram, but they're, they're pretty much the same. Uh, you write quote. Over a century ago, someone is reported to have said that people do not want to be free, they want to be comfortable. Recently, that dynamic was driven home with a vengeance when I again discovered that a vast majority of people prefer emotional, rhetorical prose to the distribution of factual history, history which informs us how we got into this mess where the trapdoors chains and manacles are located which continue to imprison us mind body and soul many can't seem to understand that a working knowledge of how you got into this mess will reveal through reverse engineering how to get out of this mess while rhetorical prose inflames the emotions but still renders the consumer of such prose a physical and mental slave at times, one must take stock of their current environment, and if they wish to progress through their goal, pardon me, with their goal of teaching about the honey trap called government, they must take a different approach or highway, end quote. Now, that's pretty potent. <laughs> and that's going to lead me to those three words I said, which I want to get into referencing the Constitution and the Anti-Federalists, and that is the mythological we the people. <laughs> At best, anybody who was we the people is dead 200 years. Absolutely. They've been dead longer than that. And if you are a student of Lysander Spooner, which I am, uh, he says, uh, when the last person died who was alive when that Constitution was ratified, the Constitution lost all of its effect and all of its power. Yet, amazingly, and this this could be a whole book, a whole career, but there's the, the yet there it is. There's this magic parchment that is 
revered. I guess that's really probably the only thing to say about it. It's revered by a lot, many constitutional conservatives and and liberals alike, although in different ways. So is there an observation, is there an explanation about how, this is interesting, how do, at minimum, two groups with almost diabolically opposed visions of what this document's supposed to say, mean, and do, how do they successfully still hold it over us? And how, and, and how are we, collectively, how are we duped into believing this thing has authority over us? Well, um, that, again, is going to require some uh, uh, deep dive into uh, the, uh, at the Constitutional Convention, there was the Committee of Style and Arrangement. Now, in all, late August of eight, uh, 1787, they were this uh, committee, which was all Federalist, which were uh, by great majority attorneys, were handed the uh, rough draft of the Constitution and said, here, prepare this, uh, you know, uh, through style and arrangement. Well, unfortunately, the headmaster of that group, he wasn't the chairman of the committee, but he was the guy who did all of the penmanship. And he admitted it on several occasions after that was one Gouverneur Morris. And Gouverneur Morris completely changed the preamble to the Constitution. He, had, he took poetic license and he changed it. Gouverneur Morris added things into the Constitution, which had been voted down by the Committee of the Whole. But Gouverneur Morris felt like, okay, well, it should be there, so I'm putting it back. All right, so it was not voted on. This is acknowledged and was debated shortly uh, for like 10, 15 years after the Constitution took effect. It was debated by several people, including one Spencer Roan, who was the uh, son-in-law of Patrick Henry, and who uh, Thomas Jefferson had uh, picked to be the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court until John Adams found out about it in 1800, and in a midnight appointment before leaving office, he appointed John Marshall to that position. Probably one of the greatest uh, strikes against liberty in the history of man was uh, putting John Marshall in that position. Uh, but Gouverneur Morris and the Committee of Style and Arrangement, they made that change. And ironically, Dan, when we say we the people, and that is something that people embrace and they love it. They love to look at that. Okay, that's us. That's we the people. But yet, in 1787, less than 6% of the population of the country could vote because there was a property requirement. So we, the people, in essence, was 6% of the population, not the 94% who were ineligible to vote, but the 6% that was eligible to vote. And then, of course, in the Virginia Ratification Convention, you had Patrick Henry, who challenged that. And he said, what right did you have to say, we the people? Should it have not been, we the states? So uh, Patrick Henry caught on to it. And uh, probably Samuel Bryan, to go back to your first point, Samuel Bryan writing as the Sentinel. 
And to show you how much they don't want you to read Sentinel's essays today, his uh, 24 essays, which most people have never heard of, are for sale on uh, Amazon for 930 bucks. So uh, if you... I'll take uh, two. <laughs> yes. But uh, Samuel Bryan saw it probably better than any other person we call an anti-federalist. But Samuel Bryan was the printed word. He was the essayist. And if you look at his counterpart, who was the orator, it was Patrick Henry. And those two men fought as hard as they could to reveal to the American public of 1788 what a fraud the Constitution was. Now, uh, Patrick Henry did it at the, especially at the uh, uh, Virginia Ratification Convention, where he spoke 17 of 24 days, one day for seven consecutive hours. Can you imagine that without a teleprompter, without no. a printed speech? A politician who could actually be so impassioned he could speak on a subject for that period of time? It's incredible, Dan. It really is when we look at those, and we and I think if we're going to understand history, we have to understand the character of history. And I think one of the greatest problems that we experience is this bastardization of putting everybody in one group and calling them the founders. These people didn't like each other. They were involved in duels. Some of them killed each other. Yeah. So this was not a group of people who under, and of course, you know, to jump back to Samuel Bryan, he nailed it pretty well when he said that the first thing these Federalists will do with this Constitution is to wrap it in the robes of divinity. And he was right, and they still do that. Yes. So he, so, you know, without knowing these people, without seeing what they had to say, and, uh, you know, I was just thinking after uh, several conversations that uh, uh, occurred on uh, the platform Teach Me, uh, I was thinking, and I, of course I had thought about this many years before, there are a lot of people out there with uh, letters after their name, PhDs and what have you, who teach a revisionist history, which is incorrect. But I also have to understand as a human being, I understand where they are, Dan. These are people who have invested a great deal of time and money into acquiring that position, that PhD, that level of knowledge to, that to them is accurate. But the thing of it is, is because they have put in so much time and money into acquiring these degrees, they believe that that information that they have belongs to them. It's mine. I paid for it. I got all of this. And when some crazy guy comes along with natural source documents from the National Archives and several, you know, uh, various uh, uh, archives across uh, the universities of North Carolina, uh, I mean, the universities of America, including North Carolina, Virginia, South Carolina, and others, uh, they suddenly feel like if you are presenting something that is contrary to everything I have invested here, you're trying to steal what I know. You're trying to negate it. You're trying to make all of my years of work nugatory. You're trying to say it's wrong. And they can't let go of it. And it's an emotional, not a logical feeling. Emotionally, they can't let go of it. 
And so they are forced to rationalize with opinion. And, you know, there are several examples of that on, on the Teach Me site where people have tried to rationalize with their opinion why something is right when the actual physical documents say, no, it's wrong. But I understand it's theirs. They believe it belongs to them and they're going to defend their property. Because who wants to know that they spent 16, 17 years in an educational system to acquire a PhD to only find out it's worthless? That's a hard thing to give up. Well, the obvious answer is nobody. Now, that's a good point. It is a good, it is a hard thing to give up. And I reflect for myself. Now, I don't have one of those fancy degrees. I have a degree, but I don't, I, I stopped there at undergrad. My specialized knowledge lies in food, cooking and baking, and to some level pastry. And I spent, without going to school for that, I went to the School of Hard Knocks for that, worked with, worked with people who have spent years perfecting their craft. And there are a few ways to make a really spectacular croissant. There isn't a single specific way to do it. But there's a lot of ways to make pretty bad ones. <laughs> so oh, it, for sure. it takes, it, it, you, you have to, part of that's ego. You, you have to, in, in, at least in baking, if you want to excel and you were taught, you know, making, making baked goods for your home and your family will love you because you're a good person to them. And if it's not as good as, bakery in the other town well that's fine but you worked hard and you did a good job and that's okay but there's a bit of ego involved in working hard to get that and then to find out that you didn't do the best that was on a personal level that can be that can sting so oh it does i'm i'm I, i like you i think like you can at least appreciate that it's a tough position to be in. Now, when you have books published with your name and, and saying these things, that's, that's a, it's a whole different thing than just making croissants. But Absolutely. In, in my progression, you know, I was in 10th grade when Reagan was shot. My stepfather was a realtor in northern Michigan. And I've come to learn that it really wasn't, it was, it was Carter and Reagan problems, but basically in the 80s, the economy sucked. You couldn't sell ice to somebody in hell. It was just not going to happen. So mm-hmm. selling houses in Michigan or anywhere, that was tough. So a lot of people became Republican because they could see they could feel things were changing. This must be because of this guy, this president. Well, that's a whole other show. It wasn't really entirely true, but in some ways the times changed and you get invested in these things. And so I was a Republican for a long time. And then I discovered that, well, no, I guess I'm not. So this is a long way to say that I am not unsympathetic to people holding down a position and you asked you asked a question in the in the platform yesterday about what 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 happens what and uh, I don't know it's I, I think it's an easy question to ask and a hard question to answer because it comes with probably comes with baggage. This a lot of this seems like it might be inside baseball. And the listeners probably saying, "What are you guys talking about?" 
the thing I'm talking about, the thing we're the things that we're mentioning here, the things we're dancing around is the information that you and I got in high school and to some degree college was at least only partially right. Maybe flat out full on wrong, but some of the details are right. So a guy named Patrick Henry did exist and he had a speech and we all know, give me liberty, give me death. And that's probably all any kids in high school are taught about Patrick Henry. Correct. If they even mentioned that Mercy Otis Warren lived, <laughs> that's an amazing thing in high school. Who right. was a girl? No way. So that's that's amazing. One, there was a woman who was amazing, and then that she existed, but no one ever hears about her. There's a popular phrase in history that history is written by the victors. Oh, absolutely. Always. And, well, I'll accept that it's written by the victors, but there's obviously at least another side for that story, and that's the side that didn't win. They have a story to tell. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it's an American thing that we like the guy who won. We like the girl who won. We like the team that won. Yeah, go Bulls or go Steelers, depending on how old you are. Right. And the losers, ah, forget about them. But from an, from a knowledge standpoint, from an intellectual standpoint, we do ourselves a disservice by ignoring the information from the side that didn't win. That's because, it's because they were bested doesn't mean they don't have a valid point. Well, Dan, the uh, very well stated and uh, the point that uh, strikes me right between the ears on that one is the fact that uh, we've all heard of the Anti-Federalists, at least I hope we have. But how many people are aware that from the 1850s to the 1950s, the Anti-Federalists were not mentioned in any academic publication. Why would you want to shut up the opponents to the Constitution for a century? And then when they were mentioned, most people had never heard of them, and it was an accident, and people are probably today cursing Cecilia Kenyon, for bringing up in the 1950s the Anti-Federalist, even though she did so in a derogatory manner, and she called them, oh, ye men of little faith. And then all of a sudden, there were a group of people go, who the hell is she talking about? We've never heard of the Anti-Federalist. So especially a uh, professor by the name of Herbert L. Storing, he goes out and starts researching, and he finds enough anti-federalist literature to fill seven volumes. And he called it the complete anti-federalist, which it wasn't even close to being the complete anti-federalist. The anti-federalist, unlike the federalist, were members of the, all of the various sections of society. Some of the Anti-Federalist papers written by farmers were almost unintelligible. And they went the gamut all the way up to the socially elite who were Anti-Federalist, who were very prolific in their writings and very eloquent. But the Anti-Federalist had all of the segments of society within their structure 
while the Federalists only had the wealthy aristocracy. No one who was called a Federalist was your common yeoman, the common guy out there trying to make a living by the sweat of his brow. They were not members of the Federalist Party. And so why did academia feel it necessary to hide the Anti-Federalist to obscure the Anti-Federalist from American society for a hundred years? With the Federalists, the we'll use the phrase of today, the elite, was that deliberate and on purpose? Were the, were the workaday folks shunned out? Oh, absolutely. When we look, uh, let's stop and look at the population in 1787. Uh, Dan, what would you say the percentage of lawyers was in society in 1787? I don't even know how to guess that. 1%. 0.06. Six-tenths of 1% of the population of the 3 million plus in 1787 were attorneys. And yet, how many attorneys were at the Philadelphia Convention? Of the original 55, 34 were attorneys. Is that 0.06%? A little bit more. <laughs> All right. Then let's look at the people who signed the Constitution. Of the 39 people who signed the Constitution, 22 were attorneys. Is that 0.06%? No, that's a magnitude more. Okay. So who was represented at the founding with the Constitution. There were no farmers there. There were no what we call yeomen there. There were no what was referred to at that time frame as mechanics, the people who go out, you know, and do various things, not necessarily working on vehicles, but they were referred to as mechanics. None of those people were represented at the Constitutional Convention. But the wealthy aristocracy was 100% there. And then if we look at one of the delegates to the convention from the state of Maryland, John Francis Mercer, who attended the Constitutional Convention for a very short time and said, no, 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 I ain't putting up with this. He went home. And he sent a letter to his fellow delegate, Luther Martin. No, not Martin Luther. Luther Martin. And he said, are you aware that over 20 of the people who are at that convention are avowed monarchists? Now, we aren't taught that by coach. Hmm. I promise you. So he saw very early on. And then to discount the fact that New York had three delegates to the Constitutional Convention, the very well-known uh, Alexander Hamilton, who was in fact white, not black, as the play says he was. Uh, Alexander Hamilton and John Lansing Jr. and Robert Yates. Now, all three were lawyers from New York. But we have to give integrity a boost here, Dan, because Robert Yates and John Lansing Jr., after Alexander Hamilton, their fellow delegate, on June the 18th of 1787, proposed a complete monarchy for a form of government at the Constitutional Convention. 
He wanted a president who would serve for life. He wanted the president to be able to appoint all members of Congress, all of the governors, and everything but the state legislatures. And they would all serve for life. This was the proposal of Alexander Hamilton. And after he made the proposal, James Madison said, oops, Hamilton's let the cat out of the bag. So then Robert Yates and John Lansing Jr., being men of integrity, left the Constitutional Convention, went home to New York, sent a letter to the governor, George Clinton, stating we could no longer participate in these events because to do so would have been to exceed the authority granted to us by the citizens of New York. So here were two men of integrity. Both of them were on the New York Supreme Court. Both of them would later become Chief Justice of the New York Supreme Court. But yet they, being men of integrity and seeing that their authority that it to stay would have exceeded the authority of the people who sent them there, wrote a letter, said, no, we can't do this anymore. And from that point forward, New York did not have a vote. Now, Alexander Hamilton is listed as voting, but it never counted as a vote in the actual proceedings because New York no longer had a quorum. If we look at the Senate alone when never mind the ratification the the faulty ratification of changing the how they're appointed 100 folks probably all lawyers they certainly are the we the people of the same kind as at the convention so maybe maybe the we the people doesn't mean all of us it just means those few elected elite over there um that's that's a bit of a dig uh, i want to bring up uh, a, a point that I heard mentioned the, the counter on a recent podcast, and that was that the the convention wasn't legally going to be a drafting of the Constitution. I, and, and you make sure I'm right here. The intent was to rewrite, rebolster, somehow tweak the Articles of Confederation. This making of the Constitution was all very hush-hush, in secret, don't tell anybody what we're doing. And that sounds like at least it's sneaky. Maybe it's not technically a coup. I don't know. I mean, I actually didn't look up what coup really means, but it certainly doesn't sound forward and transparent and on the up and up. So in your assessment, was this a coup? Is this whole affair something illegal from the very beginning? Well, it was a revolution in favor of government, Dan. Uh, it was a revolution against the principles of the Declaration of Independence and a revolution in favor of government itself. And uh, that has been addressed by quite a few people. But here is something that people must understand. Every state, except for New Jersey, every state who sent their representatives to that convention had a set of rules they must follow. They were sent there to amend the Articles of Confederation to meet the current exigencies 
of that. They were not to all offer a totally new and different form of government. They were not authorized to do so. Thus, the statement from Yates and Lansing Jr. of we can't stay here. Now, there were several other delegates who left who didn't say why they left. One of them was a gentleman from uh, uh, Georgia named Houston. Now, it's spelled like Houston. Most people would look at it and say, well, the name's Houston. But uh, if you live in the county of Georgia, which I do, it's called Houston. And they're very emphatic about it. And they believe if you say Houston, you must be a damn Yankee. So uh, Also a road in New York called Houston. Right. Spelled and, uh, exactly the same. Right. So there are people who, these people exceeded their authority. If they were not exceeding their authority, why did they meet on the second floor instead of the first? Why did they put armed guards at the door? And why did they put curtains up over the windows so no one could hear what they were saying? Now, I throw this out to people all the time. Look at the mess we're in in this country today. If somebody said, okay, well, let's create a new constitution, and they gave it over to a group of the wealthy, let's say Bezos, uh, Gates, uh, Fauci, and the others, along with a majority of lawyers, and put them in a building for secret for four months and said, okay, come up with a new form of government, and we'll love it. How many people would embrace that today, Dan? I'm actually a little cynical, but probably more than a few. Well, you're probably right, but the point of it is, especially after 100 years of indoctrination in the public fool system, and it's ironic that we follow precisely the Marxist uh, planks of the Communist Manifesto. And what is the 10th plank? A mandated educational system run by the government. How do you create a group of people who will always adhere to their government except if you can start with them when they're five or six years old and teach them that exact philosophy through 12 years? Of where in most instances, Dan, you and I know this well, that these people, these teachers who people don't even know have more influence over their children than they do during, the first tw during uh, a 12-year span of their lives. Because those teachers spend more time with them than the people do. Yep. So it's an indoctrination. It's not an education. It's an indoctrination. And we're seeing, the, we're seeing this uh, plant in full bloom today. I mean, look at uh, the abnormal actions that we see today that are accepted by so many. And where did they learn all of these? They learned them at school. I want to push back a little bit because I think Please. there's probably listeners or at least there's a there will be people who will have some resistance to the idea that what they learned, what they can go find on a book on their shelves is wrong because it's in print. And so I know that you source a lot of original documents. My pushback would be that someone might say, aren't you possibly just misreading what it is you're finding? And they would well, say, how, how could it possibly be that what 
everyone has learned for dozens or a hundred years is wrong. How is it possible that you're right and everyone concealed this? That seems preposterous. Well, Dan, here's the thing. I have been teaching these classes. I've taught these classes in Utah, Colorado, uh, Arizona, uh, Arkansas, uh, various states, uh, Oklahoma. I have taught these classes, my own classes. One of the first things I tell people who show up in person in my classes, and anyone who has attended will agree or at least comment. I've had many comments on this. One of the first things I tell people the first day of class is, number one, don't believe a damn thing I say. Now, how many other people teaching anything is going to tell you that right off the bat? And I tell what I tell my students is this. I will present to you the original source documents. You read them. You decide. I'm not going to tell you what to think. And one of the things that is an ironclad rule in all of my classes is do not ask me for my opinion because my opinion is worthless. What matters is what is printed. And we have a unique opportunity here, Dan, because during that period of our history, 1700s, you know, up to the 1800s, there were no cell phones, there were no email. Almost everything was done printed word on parchment, on letters, and exchanged between the people. Those documents, in many cases, were available 30 years ago, and they are disappearing like you wouldn't believe. I have seen so many things disappear off the Internet in the last five years. It's incredible. And recently, I found out that the rotunda at the University of Virginia has put their archives available for access. Only cost you 32 grand. So how many people are going to pay 32 grand to go look at documents that they don't even know what's on those documents? They're not going to do it. It's just like the uh, Samuel Bryan, the Sentinel essays are available. Oh, yes, you can see what Sentinel had to say. Just send us $930. So why they're saying it's available, which is one of the unique tricks. Oh, it's available. Sure it is. You can look at all of this stuff at the University of Virginia if you got a check for 32 k So I don't want people to believe what I tell them, Dan. I want them to find out this information for themselves just like I did. Because then it belongs to you. It's not something you heard some crazy old guy tell you in a class. It's not some article you read from some crazy guy. It is what you found for yourself with your own research. Then it belongs to you. The truth belongs to you because you found it. I'll tell you where to look. Be happy to tell you where to look. You want to? You ask a question about a certain part of history, I'll be happy to tell you where to look for the documents that will address that. As a matter of fact, it took me quite a period of time to do it, Dan, but I took every article, every clause in the Constitution and linked to that 
original source documents for that part of the Constitution. Not only what was said at the Constitutional Convention, but what was written about it by the Federalists, the Anti-Federalists, and any other pertinent information about that particular and no one that I know of have, has ever broken down the Constitution clause by clause with documentation, including the letters among the people who was creating this document and what they had to say about what they were creating. And to my knowledge, maybe there is someone out there. If, if there is, you know, I, I give them all the accolades in the world because I tell you what, you can't do this in an afternoon. <laughs> no, <laughs> it doesn't sound like you could do it in two years of afternoons. It's uh, It took an awful lot of time. But then again, Dan, I'll give you a great example. Uh, I had a class back in uh, southwestern Colorado for about six years. We met every Saturday. In the summertime, when the weather was good in that part of Colorado, we met twice each month. But even during the wintertime, we tried to meet once a month. And I had this retired U.S. Army colonel, and he came to the classes. He was very skeptical in the beginning, and he came to the classes, and I said, look, colonel, here's the information. You look at it. You decide. I'm not going to tell you what to think. You look at it. Make your own decisions. That's what education should be about. I'll present you the material. You look at it. You form your own opinions. And so, I moved away, went to Arkansas, went to work in Arkansas, and while I was there, I get a uh, email from the good colonel, and he says, uh, Mike, do you remember when you taught us about this, and you had the document with you, and you presented it to the class? Do you remember that? And I said, yeah, colonel, I remember that. And he said, uh, could you send me a copy of that document? And I said, yes, sir, be happy to. So I did. And then a couple of weeks later, I get an email back from him and he said, well, I wanted an original copy of that with the National Archives stamp on it. So he said, I contacted the National Archives, told them the document I wanted, told them why, you know, I didn't tell them why I wanted it, but I told them I wanted that document. I gave them the document location, which you have on your certified copy. And he said, I told him, here's my credit card number, uh, you know, whatever it costs to reproduce it here, here, everything's covered. He said, a couple of days later, I get back an email from the National Archives, which tells me, uh, sorry, but that document is no longer available for public consumption. Really? So these things are going away. And, you know, and I've, uh, Dan, I've talked to a lot of people who've been doing, you know, research uh, uh, like I have for some time and they will tell you unequivocally that this stuff is disappearing on the internet like crazy and why why is it in it why why would they not want you to see something and you know uh, then we go back to why was the works of the anti-federalists kept secret from the american public for a century and then only revealed by an accident do you think do you think they're actually destroying physical copies? 
I'm not sure if they're destroying them. Dan, I have no knowledge about that one way or the other. That would be pure speculation. I try not to do that. The only thing I'm aware of is they're not available. So I can't tell you why they're not available. I can just right. tell you suddenly they're not available anymore. I'm feeling several things about that, and it's it's tough to sort them out, but none of them feels like warm fuzzies. I understand that. Um, I haven't had warm and fuzzy for about 40 years, Dan. <laughs> um, this is just something I've been curious about, and you mentioned the uh, Committee of Style. This is... Serves only my curiosity. How many, do you know how many committees there were at the convention for the drafting of this constitution? There was only one committee for the uh, finalization, and that was the Committee on Style and Arrangement. There were several other committees throughout the Constitutional Convention. Sometimes they broke down into committees. There was one on commerce. They had a committee on commerce, and that is where the issue of slavery was hashed out. And that is where they decided, hey, we've got to have slavery because that is, and, you know, Luther Martin went uh, apoplectic about the fact that they wanted to embrace slavery in the Constitution. And, of course, we aren't taught that either. But uh, they decided, hey, uh, slavery is so much a part of commerce, it has to be a part of our Constitution. We just can't use the word slavery. So instead, we'll say people held a service. And so... There, again, are your lawyers at work. Let's not call it what it is. Let's disguise it with word salad. And so it said, those held to service. And then they said, okay, we're going to put it out there, but we're only going to put it out for 20 years. But the problem was, is that at the end of 20 years, nobody stopped it. Too much money was being made. And money was being made on both ends. The majority of the slaves were shipped uh, out of ports of Rhode Island. As a matter of fact, over 90% of the slave industry went from ships out of Rhode Island. And of course, the South was consuming the product for their work in tobacco fields, cotton fields, and rice plantations. So these were the workers, so they were consuming them, and the South was not about to say, no, don't give us any more slaves. But when George Mason made a pitch, a slave owner from Virginia, when he made a pitch at the Constitutional Convention to abolish slavery, Oliver Ellsworth from Connecticut then attacked George Mason and said, the only reason you're saying you want to abolish slavery as far as the shipping and the commerce is concerned, is because with your number of slaves now, you're in the slave breeding business. So if you say, let's stop the importation of slaves, you drive your market price up. These are the discussions, Dan, that took place at the Constitutional Convention we're never told about. It's a little less than the humanitarian we led to believe. Oh, exactly. And then if you look at people like Oliver Ellsworth, when they came up with the three-fifths clause, and the South was adamant about the three-fifths clause, although the North did not want this black man or woman to count for anything. 
and the black catches hell because they went for the three-fifths clause, but nobody says anything about the North who didn't want this black person to count at all for representation. But when the three-fifths clause came up, it was such an argument. Oliver Ellsworth came up and said, look, if those people in the South can count their slaves, then I should be able to count my horses, cows, and chickens. And, of course, we aren't taught that down at the local gulag either. But the conversations that actually took place there, Dan, tell us so much about exactly what was happening, but why aren't we taught these? And again, when I bring these up, these are in certified documents from either the Library of Congress, the National Archives, University of Maryland, University of Virginia, University of North Carolina, University of South Carolina, where I've done my research. These documents are available. They are source documents. But again, it's much easier to pick up a book. Yeah, I got a little book here. I got a little paperback. I'll read 33 pages and I am an expert. But what you are reading is someone's opinion of history. You're not looking at the source documents. And what's that old phrase? We won't go into it, Dan, but what's that thing about opinions? <laughs> I'm going to let the listener finish that for himself. Uh, everybody Good knows. plan. Good plan. Um, politics has always been passionate. And I th it, it's pretty easy. So in current times, everybody remembers the last one or two presidential elections and and there was a lot of zeal. And I think a lot of commentators will say, well, you know, we should be more like the founders, which tells me, A, they don't know a damn thing about what it was like <laughs> during the founding time. There was no shortage of passion. Uh, there was no shortage of vitriol and maybe even no shortage of hatred during the founding colonial era. I, I think that's glossed over and we're presented with the first four or five presidents are basically the same person. They just have a different face. But well, George, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, pardon me, uh, Dan, but uh, a great example of that would be the 1800 election of where the election had to go to the House of Representatives and the House of Representatives had 34 votes before a president was selected, which happened to be Thomas Jefferson. And then quickly upon Jefferson's election as president of the United States, the New England states threatened to secede. No one ever hears about that. No. And of course, the machinations that took place behind closed doors that gave the election to Jefferson because the tie was not between Jefferson and John Adams. The tie was between Jefferson and Aaron Burr. And of course, at that time, the person with the most votes, most votes got to be president. Second most was vice president. Well, you know, we'd had the election of 1796 where Adams prevails but Jefferson was close behind. He's the vice president. And so then you end up with the Alien Sedition Acts of 1798, where uh, Adams and the Federalist-dominated Congress said, okay, we're going to pass a law which says you can't say anything negative about the government unless it's Thomas Jefferson. 
Now, you can't say anything negative about anybody, but you can say anything negative about the vice president that you so desire. But then in the courts, Dan, the Supreme Court said that it doesn't make any difference if what you say you're, criti you're criticizing the government, no matter what you say or print, even if it's true, you'll be prosecuted. And and like, we think like we think yeah, just like today, you you will be prosecuted even if it's true. A member of Congress from Vermont, one Matthew Lyons, says something anti John Adams and the government on the floor of the U.S. House of Representatives, and is charged under the Alien Sedition Act, is tried and is convicted and put into prison, and he's reelected while in prison. So, and then uh, the chief, one of the, not the chief justice, but one of the justices of the Supreme Court, Samuel, um, oh gosh, what was his last name again? I'm sorry. But anyway, he makes the statement sitting on the, on, as the judge in the case, and he charged the jury. And he became so offensive towards the defense attorneys in this case that the defense team left, and then this judge takes over Chase, Samuel Chase. There, there it popped into this old head. Samuel Chase tells the jury, well, it doesn't make any difference whether what was said or was true or not. You are to find the man guilty if he said it. And they had the documentation in a paper that he had said it, so he had no chance. His name was James Callender. He was he was uh, also convicted along with Matthew Lyon. So here you have, you can't say anything negative about the government. And like you just alluded to so presciently there, uh, Dan, we've got the same thing going now with this new committee that uh, Biden wants to bring up, uh, the disinformation program, where if uh, you can't say anything negative about the government, I don't care if it's true. We can't have that. So we're, you know, uh, what was it George Santayana said? Those who fail to learn the lessons of history are destined to repeat its mistakes. Well, that part is true. And more and more and more. I'm going to move to the last part of my introduction, and that is to ask the how. How does this knowledge how can this knowledge be put to use today and to what end can we can we un can we you know that's a weird pronoun can this thing be undone what do we how, how do we use this knowledge well hopefully not to over simpli simplify but dan if you end up with a leak in your roof and it's causing you a lot of problems. And you think you repaired it, but the leak continues. Is it not vital that you know what caused the leak? It is. Okay. If people can't understand why we're in the mess we're in, if they can't find the root cause for it, they can't fix it. And that's why we have a multitude of people out here running around thinking they found the magic bean that's going to cure government by using 
part of government to cure itself. That will never happen. You cannot, uh, you know, if uh, you go, if anyone goes to the doctor and they said, oh, I'm sorry, you have liver cancer. I am pretty sure no one there is going to say, well, I tell you what, why can I trade this for lung cancer? Because it's still a cancer. And if we look at the law of physics, the law of physics tells us if we want to change directions, we must first come to a complete stop. You cannot change directions without stopping the direction you're going. And so we have to quit participating in the thing that has destroyed us. And that's why I write so many times the answer to the problem that we have is not more of the problem that caused it. And the Constitution was designed to do exactly what we're looking at today. The Constitution was designed to provide Abraham Lincoln with all of the tools he needed to be the most unconstitutional president in history. And he has a monument for being the most unconstitutional president in history. So, you know, sometimes I look at this, Dan, and it's almost humorous that all of the evidence is sitting there right square, damn, in front of our faces, and we refuse to see it. And, you know, that was the thing talking about Lincoln. Look at how many people in the Democratic Party love Lincoln. Look at how many people in the Republican Party love Lincoln. They don't love him because he freed the slaves because he didn't. They love him because he had a domineering government of which no one could escape. And that's why, you know, uh, Obama said, uh, oh, well, uh, when asked who was his favorite president, oh, there's no contest, that's Lincoln. Hillary Clinton, when asked who was your favorite president, and she said, oh, Bill, I'm sorry, but it's Abe. And then you get to Donald Trump, who in 2016, while campaigning for president in Detroit, said, I am the nominee of the party of Lincoln, and I intend to take this party back to the principles of Abraham Lincoln. Please don't. But there, this is what, you know, a lack of knowledge leads to exactly what we're staring in the face today. We, we have probably the most corrupt government in history. And as uh, Samuel Bryan said, uh, you know, again, you can get his works for 930 bucks. Samuel Bryan said that it was all a criminal, the Constitutional Convention was a criminal conspiracy. And he was exactly right. There was a conspiracy because the letters between John, uh, I mean, between James Madison, George Washington, uh, General Knox, uh, Alexander Hamilton, those letters prior to the Constitutional Convention reveal the fact that it was a conspiracy. James Madison had already prepared the Virginia plan before they ever got to Philadelphia. He had put it all together. And so the, uh, that was the first thing that was read, was the Virginia plan. There were, the Articles of Confederation were not discussed. Was Now, I, I admit my own ignorance about the Virginia plan, but is that what he was referring to about Am Hamilton letting the cat out of the bag? Yes, because uh, Madison had written to, and people talk about Madison, oh, what a wonderful guy with the Bill of Rights and everything else. Madison, in a letter to George Washington, said, in our new plan of government, we have to destroy the states except where they can be subordinately useful. 
that's in a documented letter. Is that the words of a, is that not a conspiracy? We're going, and uh, in a letter from uh, George Washington to John Jay, who would become the first Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Washington says to Jay, this uh, convention that we're planning may not be legal, you know. That's in the documents. And then... Doesn't read like that in the Federalist Papers. No, of course it doesn't. And then you have, you know, the uh, on June the 4th, 1787, 1789, I'm sorry, 88, 1788, when Patrick Henry asked at the opening of the Virginia Ratification Convention, asked them to produce all of the documents for the Annapolis Convention, all of the documents for the Constitutional Convention, all of the proceeds. He said, we should be able to see all of this before we debate on whether to ratify this Constitution or not. And Edmund Randolph says, nope, you can't see them. And if you're trying to infer that, the, uh, that they violated their oath or violated the law, that's immaterial. It makes no difference. So what if they broke the law? Now that's was, in the that's in the transcripts. So what if they broke the law? That's all. Yes. You have, to, you have to pass the bill to see the bill. That's all. <laughs> well, well said, Dan. Well said. There is a, there's a, there's so much here, and and that's why you have a platform. Let's take a moment out for words from Jake about his tasting anarchy podcast. Hey everyone, Jake here, host of the Tasting Anarchy podcast. Join my co-host Mason and I each week as we explore the world of wine and alcohol through a liberty lens. You can find us on all your major podcatchers, tastinganarchy.com or Tasting Anarchy on Twitter. Tasting Anarchy, your wine and liberty podcast. Find out how much government is in your drink. So when I get to that part, I want to... I'm going to move off of this a little bit. I have another part of the show I want to get into, and this is just, uh, it's a, we're going to, we can come back to history for a minute. Um, but I want to get into a little, kind of a lightning round. It's not, you know, take your time answer, but it's pretty simple questions. Um, Hit me. Of the five flavors, sweet, sour, salty, bitter, or umami, which one is your favorite? Salty. What's your favorite food? My favorite food. Ah, does that do I get a meal choice or just one total? Either one. Well, I'm a big fan of pasta. And I'm not Italian. It's okay. So I'm a big fan of pasta. Pasta would probably be my favorite food. What's your least favorite food? Ah, gosh. Mmm. Chicken. Southerner says chicken? Mm-hmm. Now, there's a reason behind that. I bet there is. Do you want to share it? Have you ever heard of Balutz? Uh, I don't know. Well, here was a young guy at the age, a very young age of 18 going to a jungle survival school in the Philippines. Oh, yes. I know what this is. Go ahead. You are, you are familiar with what Balutz are. <laughs> yep. Okay. All right. Need I say more? No. Nope. 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 What sound do you love? The sound of silence. What sound do you hate? 
loud, boisterous noise. Uh, okay. Go ahead. I'm finishing your loud, boisterous noise. Uh, and especially the sound that I hate is people trying to talk over each other. <laughs> Podcast accepted. <laughs> exactly. What gets you excited? Freedom. What turns you off? Slavery. What's your favorite food indulgence? Mm. Wow. Could you be a little bit more specific there, Dan? You kind of got me stumped on that one. What's the one thing if it costs calories, fat, be damned, you would eat this on a great day? Cornbread. Oh, okay. So, Mr. Southern Man, sugar or no sugar? Uh, I grew up, uh, Dan, I was adopted by my grandparents when I was seven. My grandfather lived to be 100. Uh, and the cuisine of my youth, as my grandfather used to say, we have a diverse uh Diverse choice here. One day we have beans and potatoes. Next day we have potatoes and beans. But uh, almost everything that we had back then, Dan, was sweetened with honey and not confectioner's sugar. I don't remember seeing sugar in the household that I grew up in. Uh, but things were sweetened with a touch of honey. And in some cases, if we were running low on honey, it would be a touch of molasses. But uh, there was, uh, was no real sugar. I didn't grow up with sugar. And uh, back then, I remember soft drinks. My grandfather called them dope. He was right. Because it was uh, Coca-Cola, but uh, his phrase dope. And uh, I was, uh, you know, cautioned against soft drinks when I was a kid. You know, of course, back then they were, you know, all the way up to a nickel at one time. So, uh, you know, uh, but I had to try some because they told me I couldn't, you know, you of know course. how that goes, yes. the old human nature. But uh, I found them, found them very syrupy and heavy as opposed to the light uh, honey flavor of sweetening that I had had throughout uh, my uh, bringing up. I think there is a very clear line between, for Southerners, for cornbread, I think there's, a, and, and this, and, and it's not a law, not a rule, but I think that for the most part, Southerners are, cornbread is unsweetened, and in the North, cornbread is sweetened. Now, there are going to be a thousand exceptions to that, and sweetened how is a whole other story. It's just, it's, it's one of those interesting things that changes from family to family and over time, and it doesn't mean anything at all other than it, it interests me. <laughs> food food well, history. Let me, let, me, let me throw something out I tell people, Dan, and this is the truth. I was in the eighth grade before I found out cornbread wasn't cake. I'm not entirely convinced it's not cake. I mean... We we had it with everything. You know, of course, back then it was corn pone. Ah, yes. In many cases, my grandpa called it corn pone. Uh, we had it with, uh, you know, with our meals. It was, you know, except breakfast. 
And one of the things that my grandfather used to love to do with his was to get a glass of buttermilk and yeah. take his cornbread yeah. and crumble it up in there and, and make a mixture that he that he would eat with a spoon. And Probably he just loved it. Not the stuff today. So. No, no, not the not the uh, stuff that passes for cornbread today. No, this was the uh, real stuff. Years ago at the. Well, it was a small community college in Panama City Beach. Um, he passed away. His name was John Holly. He was maybe the dean of the culinary arts department. John had a immense culinary curiosity. And one of the things we had fun talking about was all of the different names that we could think of applying corn cornmeal to a thing and cornbread, corn bone, Johnny cakes. And I, we probably had a dozen of them. I've forgotten most of them, but uh, it was it was fun talking to John about tracing those kinds of different food names based mostly on the same ingredients, but they change from from a people's to a geographic location to cooking conditions. It was just it was interesting. Hmm. Uh. I uh, envy you your studies there, uh, Dan, in many in many ways. Uh, uh, and again, uh, mine was an interesting childhood, and uh, you know I felt like up until my high school years, I, with there being a generation between myself and my parents, uh, who were my grandfather and grandmother, I felt deprived in so many ways back then because I wasn't. Uh, hip to the new stuff that kids were doing when I was that age. And I was restricted to certain things I could and could not do. And uh, so, and I felt like that I was being deprived in many ways. But now today, Dan, I am so thankful for that because I realize I miss nothing in that generation gap. But I gained so much by being able to draw on especially, and I quote him so many times, my grandfather lived to be 100 years old, and he was had a second grade education, but without a doubt was the wisest man I ever met in my life, and he could encapsulate life into a sentence, and various things in life. He could, he could just, you know, one of the classics he told me one time is, uh, uh, boy, don't try to make sense out of people that don't have any. So, I mean, how much wisdom can you get in that None sentence, more. Dan? That that was that one was just, uh, you know, and uh, I hope you don't mind the phraseology here, but he taught me so much because in the late seventies, he passed away in eighty-three. But in the late seventies, I used to sit and talk with him for hours about some of the stuff I was finding at my job, some of the things that really troubled me and all of the other stuff. And I remember asking him, look, Pa, here is the documented evidence. Why won't people believe it? I mean, here it is. Here's the source documents, and you can show it to people, and they don't believe it. And he sat there for a second, and then he said, boy, ain't nobody wants to believe that their mama's a whore. And how much knowledge can you put into that? I think I think that's also I mean, full up. 
uh, and then again, one of his best ones, and I think he got this. From, I think he borrowed this from someone else. But uh, he always told me, "A boy uh, always understand that a man who understands women is one." So he was talking to fifty years in the future. <laughs> yes, exactly. He didn't know it though. But uh, no, I, I would not be surprised if he did not, in fact, know it. Damn, because. I remember when he turned 97 years old and I was driving him back home from his birthday party, uh, took him out to see the living relatives that he had in the community where he grew up. And, uh, we were driving back home and, uh, I said, wow, 97, Paul. I said, man, just imagine that most people don't even come near being that age. And he said, uh, well, Boy, I ain't going to be around too much longer, and I'm really glad. And I said, Pa, don't say that. I said, look, yeah, you're 97 years old, but look, you're healthy. You get up every day. You make your own bed. Sometimes you fix your own breakfast. You, you know, you take care of yourself. You're pretty well self-sufficient. You just happen to live in the same house with me, but you're pretty well self-sufficient. And he said, no, that's not what I'm talking about. He said, boy, if you live to be anywhere near as old as I am now, I wouldn't want to see what you're going to see. How did he know? And some of the stuff we look at now, some of the stuff we look at now, Dan, just shocks me. And I think so many times, what would his reaction have been to this? And then I'm thankful he didn't ever see it. Because it would, I think it would have destroyed him. What he was seeing in the 70s was destroying him. Hmm. And uh, I remember when uh, he was not for voting, he thought that was a waste of time. He was uh, the original anarchist in my life. And uh, <laughs> I asked him about the election in 1980 when Ronald Reagan was elected. And I said, uh, well, I said, uh, Pa, he's, a, he's an actor. And he said, ah, why not? We should have an actor. We've had a clown for the last four years. He didn't think much of the Southern Jimmy Carter boy either. You mentioned, and I've mentioned, your Teach Me channel. is is So that's one way people can follow you. That's I mentioned on Telegram. Uh, is there uh, any other ways right. that people can follow you? Well, I am working on, uh, I've got a website, uh, which uh, I recently had to uh, redo because the old website, the uh, holder of the platform wanted a couple of grand a year to put up my stuff. So I, I, had, I had to make a change and uh, I don't have anywhere near, I've got 40 years worth of articles that I've written. Uh, you know, I wrote for Lou Rockwell for about five years. I've written for various uh, uh, blog posts and websites and what have you. And I've, I want to put all of those together because I'm getting rather long in the tooth. And I want to put all those together for other folks to be able to access at some point in time. Plus, the thing I like about it, Dan, is I can go back to articles that I've written three, you know, three decades ago. And I can witness my own transition. Mm -hmm. The things that I thought was true 30 years ago that have proved not to be. And at first, when I looked at those, I thought, well, you know, if you reprint that on your website, people are going to think you were you were 
status back then. And maybe I need to go back and alter them. And then I said, no, I can't do that. That's dishonest. And maybe I can show other people my path and the things that happened with me during that 30-year, 35-year period that led me to where I am today. And uh, But, you know, I, I look at articles like the one I wrote in 2009 for Lou Rockwell, and I predicted a pandemic with forced vaccination. Now, how would know. I know that? So uh, I look at some of these things, and I again, I understand that, again, Patrick Henry in that uh, give me liberty or give me death speech when he said, I know of no way to predict the future but by the past. And that rings home with me quite a bit. And how many things, as you and I have just talked about, Dan, can, I, can we look back at the founding era and the fraud surrounding the Constitution and bring that totally into today's picture as being relevant with the same thing happening over and over. The lawyers that created the Constitution wanted to make darn sure in their composition that regardless of what the issue was, regardless of who came up with this, who came up with that, that the final arbiter would be a lawyer. Now, that to many people is an oversimplification, but they designed the Constitution exactly that way. The last people who will be the final arbiters will always be lawyers under this Constitution. It was designed that way. And then for them to throw in that the courts could decide not only on the law, but on the facts. Now, when we read that, we don't really get the full impact of what they were doing there because these were lawyers they were designing things but if a if a an appellate court can decide and this includes a supreme court can decide on the facts as well as the law they can overturn a jury decision and that's what they wanted that gave the lawyers the ability to overturn the will of the people as presented in a grand jury or in a pettit jury. And their Judicial Act of uh, the Article 3 and the Judicial Act of 1789 gave them that ability to be able to say, okay, well, we've got a jury trial here and the jury says so and so. You know, uh, George Hobbs and I made the uh, uh, graphic example of the Virginia Tech, the shooting at Virginia Tech. There were several families who said, no, we will not accept the $100,000 that were being offered by the state and by Virginia Tech because they didn't notify the students in time to stop them from going to classes where they ended up being, uh, you know, uh, targets. And so they took their case to court and in their court case they won the jury awarded these families four million dollars for what had happened to their loved ones so the state of Virginia promptly appeals that to the appellate court which says nope sorry you get a hundred thousand that's it they overturned a jury decision and this is something in in those little intricacies of 
oh, we get to decide on the law and the fact and the facts that most people who aren't lawyers, who have no legal ease and aren't familiar with word salad, we don't understand, Dan, that we were set up with that, is that the final arbiters of what is and what is not constitutional would be the lawyers. And in the Supreme Court, we have nine politically well-connected lawyers serving for life, never elected by anyone, and there is no recourse this side of heaven for their decisions. I don't know how anyone could uh, embrace a constitution that provides that. I don't have an answer to that. All right, folks, that's going to do it. Michael has four archived shows on the Speak Free radio page. I'll let a link to that page on the show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 201. Click the podcast tab and find Rebel Madman on the thumbnail images. Things happen, and he's no longer on that platform. At least I'm pretty sure that's right. And he is looking for different hosting for his shows. But all things come. If your biscuits are giving you trouble, maybe it's not you. Maybe it's the flower. I mentioned to Michael that White Lily really does make a difference, and you heard him tell about how his grandma and grandpa had some. I'll add an Amazon link to the page for White Lily Flower. Give that a try for your biscuits or pie crusts and see if that doesn't fix what's wrong. Thank you for being here. I appreciate you listening. Thanks also to my Patreon supporters. The Chef's Table portion of Michael's interview is up on the Patreon page. You can access that one and the others and the more to come when you become a patron on Patreon at culinarylibertarian.com slash support. Just click the Patreon tab. Have a good week, and I'll see you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian Podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com.